States International Convention, 55 years, one day at a time, July 5th through the 8th, 1990, in Seattle, Washington. Just to open this meeting in the usual fashion with a moment of silence, can I please have that moment of silence now? Thank you. Will you please join me in the serenity prayer? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Thank you. My name is Pete. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Hi everybody. I do uh, reside in West Germany. However, I have some trouble explaining that with my accent. Uh, <laughs> I do... Uh, I do originally come from England. I left uh, Germany on geographical, but uh, I stayed sober, and uh, now it's home for me. Okay, um, the next point is to the anonymity tradition. There may be some here who are not familiar with our tradition of personal anonymity at the public level. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, TV and films. Thus, we respectfully ask that no AA speaker or indeed any AA member be identified by full name or photograph in published or broadcast reports of our meetings. The assurance of anonymity is essential in our effort to help other problem drinkers who may wish to share our recovery program with us. And our tradition of anonymity reminds us that AA principles come before personalities. I don't believe we have any announcements. Uh, this meeting is being taped. Uh, tapes will be available at the tape sale booth. Okay, we have, uh, this is a speaker meeting. We have three speakers for you today. Uh, the subject of the meeting is a vision for you. Um, I would like to read uh, just a short paragraph from the big book. In the, as all of you, I'm sure, will know, a Vision for You is the last chapter in the program section of the book. And I would just like to read this uh, short piece from on page 152 of the third edition. It says, You are going to meet these new friends in your own community. Near you, alcoholics are dying helplessly, like people in a sinking ship. If you live in a large place, there are hundreds, high and low, rich and poor. These are future fellows of Alcoholics Anonymous. Among them you will make lifelong friends. You will be bound to them with new and wonderful ties, for you will escape disaster together, and you will commence shoulder to shoulder your common journey. Then you will know what it means to give of yourself, that others may survive and rediscover life. You will learn the full meaning of love thy neighbor as thyself. Okay. Uh, the first speaker we have for you uh, this afternoon is Cliff R. Cliff. Hi, I'm Cliff, and I'm an alcoholic. Now, if you want to believe the program, it's Cliff Poach. Uh, probably a good egg. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, ungrateful swine. Uh, <laughs> I noticed they got Bob B. in there all right. Uh, 
<laughs> Big kissy. Uh, not only they didn't got Maurice's rights, they even gave her occupation too. <laughs> Doesn't say school teacher Cliff on there. Junk bond salesman Bob. Uh, You got to be very careful when the guy's got the mic last. Mm. <laughs> but, but I always like to live dangerously. You could ask my Al-Anon. <laughs> uh, and my Al-Anon came to hear me. Boy, I thought that was really wonderful. She's sitting with the hog farmers from Iowa. Uh, since I sobered up, she's always looking for lower companions somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so if I fail to offend anybody yet, let's see. Uh, I'll think of it as I go along. <laughs> A vision for you. Uh, I, I cried so much last night that I had to take salt tablets back at the motel. You know? <laughs> Goddamn June, she makes me cry at home and just sitting around a big screen up there, you know. And remembered what a little twit she was when she got here. Uh, she used a four-letter verb uh, as an adjective, an adverb, a noun, a preposition. But, but she, too, knew, only knew, let's see, three other words. Mother. Uh, I forgot what the other two were. Uh, I've forgotten what the other two were. <laughs> but to be able to be a part of this thing, you know, that one of the things the Vision View says, you will... You'll meet many of us. And boy, you do this weekend, don't you? Uh, and it's incredible, you know, to see people from Iowa and people from all over Canada and everything. You know, and, and we know each other. We just stop in the street and uh, talk and, uh, and share with each other. It's incredible. Uh, social drinkers just never get a deal like this, ever. <laughs> Unless, of course, they marry one of us. LAUGHTER <laughs> We know all about having a good time, goddammit, boy. We know how to have fun. Oh, I love to say that in an AA meeting, you know. Their eyes all glaze over. They all go, yeah. You know. You know what I'm talking Fun. You know, like getting beaten to a pulp and go to jail. Huh? Fun. Finding your car at the bottom of a ravine in the morning, remember? With you in it. Fun! Oh, I could not resist fun. I was like that dog in the call of the wild, you know. I'd, I'd have one of those days where the boss was out to get me and got me. And uh, I owed a billion dollars and I didn't have a brass razoon. I was married to her. And uh, I had all these dope fiend children and... Uh, and the world sucked. Now Bob would come by and say, come on, Cliff, let's go have some fun. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm talking about. You want to have some, a good time, say that in an Al-Anon meeting. 
They all do that. They don't like fun. <laughs> they have fun. Yes. We had lots of fun last night, didn't we, Cliff? But I want to tell you, boy, when we got to Alcoholics Anonymous, there wasn't much fun left anymore. I'll say. Uh, we had a dual disease. We had alcoholism and Catholicism. Uh, <laughs> consequently, we had a kid every nine months and 20 minutes. Uh, seemed that way to me. <laughs> every time I came out of a blackout. <laughs> Who the hell is that? Uh, they're all right when they're little like kittens, you know, but when they grow up, they get weird, you know, and uh, I was school teaching there in old Oceanside, California, and uh, these kids are growing up, and we're talking the late 60s now, folks. Uh, three of my kids are in high school, and uh, my oldest son's working his way through high school as a hashi salesman. Uh, <laughs> never had to give him any spending money, I'll guarantee you. I used to hit him up for a fifth about once a week, you know. <laughs> I mean, he had hair down to his butt, of course. His head went like this all the time. And called his mother, man. Hey, man, what's for dinner? And, uh, and he took LSD like it was popcorn. Oh, he loved that, you know. See a few eyes down in front here. <laughs> uh, you know, he used to see those peripheral lights all the time. You remember those, you guys, you know. Scared the hell out of me. I'd be right in the middle of the sentence. He said, what was that? Course, I'd say, I don't know. What was it? What, 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 what? Boy, I was. Uh... And my drunken mother-in-law lived with us, and she said, I'll explain it. You know, and... Uh... Oh, man. That was the most cuckoo place in the world, you know. Because we're still that way. We're gregarious, you might say, uh, my family. And uh, every kid, every dope fiend that ran away, ran to my house. You know, what the hell? I couldn't tell it there. I just had anybody come near me. <laughs> and, uh, and so we had all these weird children. Well, of course, my girlfriend, my daughters had these boyfriends. Uh, they looked exactly like my son. <laughs> you put the three of them on the couch together. You should have watched that. That was something beautiful to say. And, uh, and all these weird kids around. And then my mother-in-law would go around the block and bring these old guys home. And, uh, and I had a choice bunch of friends. You should have seen that. And uh, it was just wall-to-wall insanity. It was just a, it was just a nut house. And uh, Jack Parr said one time, it's like they tipped the world and everything loose rolled to Southern California. <laughs> I was in Okaboji, Iowa recently, and they hung out in some bushes there, I'll guarantee you. Uh, And uh, I always said they, they tipped Southern California, everything loose rolled to my house. And, uh, you know, it was just a crazy place. And it was full of anger, a lot of anger there, because I'm a real foul-mouthed, violent, cruel, sadistic uh, drunk. And uh, those kids were not very crazy about me. Matter of fact, they hated the ground I walked on. And uh, the pre-Alanon, she was in terminal stages by then, you know, she had the tech in the eye and the whole thing. And, uh, <laughs> She'd lost her sense of humor a long time before that. And, uh, and they, they weren't too crazy about her because she wouldn't do anything about him. And uh, God knows we had no relationship whatsoever. 
just kind of cordial hatred, I guess is what you'd say. And I knew if I could just unload that bunch of weirdos, those dope fiend children and that miserable wife, if I could just get rid of them, I could drink like a gentleman again, you know. And, uh, and on and on it went. And I, I was, you know, one of the reasons I almost died was I'm a functioning alcoholic. Uh, my sponsor was a wino, you know. He came out from under a bridge. Uh, and, you know, he could drink or, or do anything else. He couldn't, if he drank, he didn't work or anything else. He just, you know, if you gave him a drink, he didn't see him for three, four years. Uh, but I don't have to drink all day. That's kind of drunk I am. And I have to do ten times more than you to prove I'm half as good. And I get out there and function. And I don't drink all day. Because it feels so good when I get to the end of the day. <laughs> you know. And, uh, and I was a highly successful school teacher. <laughs> That's not a contradiction. <laughs> when I got here, I was one of the top three or four debate coaches in Western United States. You know, that's a honor roughly equivalent to being one of the top three prostitutes in Elko, Nevada. You know, uh, but among speech coaches, it's a big deal, you know, and uh, four or five years before I got here, uh, the first time I ever went to a speech tournament, uh, I had this bunch of lowly kids that didn't know anything because they had a very poor teacher. And we went to this speech tournament down at San Diego State College, which is 30 miles away from Oceanside. And when we got there, I went in the coach's room and my team was being slaughtered. And I was all uptight because I'm the kind of a drunk that doesn't like to lose. It ticks me off to lose. And they all snubbed me, all these coaches in the room. They're all pals hanging around together. And they snubbed me because I was the new guy. One coach there was had a lot of hair. He bothered me right away. Uh, you know, he had about a $700 suit on, and the other coaches did this when they went in front of him, you know. Uh, and this clown turns to me about 2 in the afternoon in the throes of my defeat, and I says, Where are you from? God, I was grateful to be spoken to at that point. You know, I said, Oceanside. He said, Oh, where is that? 30 miles down the road is where it was. I don't know what you're like, but the guy gave me a resentment. <laughs> I, 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 five years later, I was still thinking about this guy. I go back to this high school. I go through the IQ files. I found the 50 smartest kids in the school. I just stop a kid in the hall and say, you're a debater. Kisses. I don't want to debate. I didn't ask you that. Get your butt in the room. <laughs> they went, baby. They say, we don't have willpower. <laughs> Other teachers went home at 4 o'clock. I'm there 9, 30, 10 o'clock every night. I'm coaching, baby. I'm screaming and yelling and cursing. <laughs> coaching! That's this kid of mine one time. He said, what's the secret of your coach's success? The kid said, terror. <laughs> you got any idea how hard that is to make 50 people do what they don't want to do? I have to drink when I do that, and I did. I had a half a pint of warm vodka waiting for me in the car every night. I'd finish with that last kid, and I'd get in that car and say, And I don't know about you, but booze always made me well. It put me back together. I've been crazy since I was four years old. And the only thing that ever helped me was booze. Nothing better than hot vodka. Hot vodka and a good cigar, baby. That's a trip to paradise. Yeah. All the psychiatrists laid in the end in the world could not help me one jillionth as much as a half a half a pint of hot vodka. And uh, then I'd go home and get drunk, and that's what happened to that family. But I built that speech team up, and a couple years we won one of those speech tournaments. But I didn't say anything to the gray-haired guy. It wasn't time yet. 
The next year, there were like 12, 14 tournaments. We won them all. We won all 14. But I can wait. <laughs> I think revenge is better than Christmas, don't you? <laughs> and uh, the next year, there was this tournament. There were 25 schools competing in the tournament, and my team scored more sweepstakes points than the other 24 schools combined. Then I went up to the gray-haired guy, and I put my nose right against his, and I said, Do you know where Oceanside is now? And this guy just looks blank, see? He said, What in the world are you talking about? I said, Don't you remember about four or five years ago, you said to me, Oceanside, where's that? And he said, we just moved here from Nebraska. I didn't know where it was. <laughs> now, a person like that reading a vision for you is going to have a problem. I don't think I saw a vision for you until I'd been sober four years, about the eighth time through the book. I never saw the promises for at least three years. When I got to the end of the promises, it said, are these extravagant promises? I went, oh, no, not really. <laughs> anyway, right after that, my wife and I had one of these main events, which the neighbors have come to miss so much. And uh, I moved out, and I was living down at the beach, and I went by the house this afternoon, and uh, that's where I hit my bottom. I uh, was talking to my wife, and I turned to my oldest son, the hashy salesman, and uh, I said to Dave, what's it like not to have your old man around the house, Dave? And he looked me right in the eye and he said, it's beautiful. You know, now maybe your bottom was in a prison cell. I don't know. Maybe your bottom was out on Skid Row under a bridge somewhere. You know, maybe you were a motorcyclist who ran over a child. I don't know. That was my bottom. I didn't even know it at the moment. I went home and I went back to the dump where I was living on the beach. And I ranted and raved and screamed and hollered. Huh? I said, that woman has turned my children against me. And I did not take a drink that afternoon. It had been a long time since I hadn't had a drink. And uh, I went out and sat on the screen porch, and I watched the ocean all the rest of that afternoon. And I watched the most beautiful sunset that I ever saw. And about the time that the sun was going down, I had what our big book talks about, that moment of clarity. I saw me. I saw what I had become. I had hated myself my whole life. But there had been about maybe three things about myself that I had always respected about me. And I realized that evening that, that I had traded in those three things for the privilege of consuming booze. And uh, I, I just saw me. I saw what David saw. And I had been to AA before that three or four or five times. And I, I, uh, I remembered I had the big book in this old sea bag where I kept stuff that I didn't use. And I went and dug it out. I had read it once before, and being an English teacher, I thought it was poorly written. <laughs> Nothing like death staring in the face to make you a good reader, you know? I read that book for three days and three nights. I called in sick. I didn't go to work. I read the big book. I ate some. I slept a little. And on the 13th of January, 1970, I was the third time through the book. And I was on page 63 again. And on page 63, there is a prayer. And if you're new here, that prayer is step three. And in my befuddled condition, it seemed like it would be a good idea if I would just kneel down on that filthy linoleum floor on that dump on the beach, and if I just read that prayer out loud to myself, that's what I did. I read, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as you will. Relieve me of the bondage 
of self. And I looked up the word bondage one time. It means slavery. Relieve me of the bondage of self. And uh, the great fact became apparent, you know. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. And uh, I probably would say it as I don't understand God. But uh, I know a lot about God. And I too, there's, God's in this room, I'll tell you for sure. We were laughing a little while ago. huh? I hear God when we laugh. Anybody ever came near me in my life, I heard him. And for the last 20 and a half years, I've been trying to give back to the world. You know, I've been given freely what was given to me. And I love to hear us laugh. I love to sit where you're sitting, where the hog farmers are sitting over there. <laughs> yeah. And we're all laughing together, you know, and God talks to me. I hear God talk to me. And the uh, second part of that vision for you says, you know, that we, we give it away. What we find here, we give it away. And it's been my experience that I cannot keep this unless I give it away. There's no way I could stay sober without carrying the message. And uh, I've carried the message to a lot of people who didn't want it. You know, just wanted to puke on my shoes. Well, have a good time, you know. Chuck used to say, better be the puke than the pukey, you know. Uh, or vice versa, whatever, you know. But I, uh, I've gone to some dirty, filthy places and found some dirty, filthy men. And, you know, when I get there, I always get a treat. First thing I do when I get me a brand new one is I get down and look in his eyes. And you know what I see? I see what my eyes looked like when I was four years old. Lack of power was my dilemma. And I'll get that guy cleaned up, you know, and take him to a meeting and go to a coffee shop after the meeting, sit across the table from him. And a lot of times that night, lots of times that night, the power is in his eyes. And I got to watch that happen. And I know guys, 19, 17, 18. How many years you got, Kemp? You're the only one that doesn't look any better. He's hoping for the Smith brothers to come back, you know. Uh, but he's a hell of an AA, I'll guarantee. He keeps his beard clean now. Uh, I, got, I was talking to LA, and those two nitwits were new. You had to sit right in front of me there, didn't you? They were sober what? They were sober three days and married five. You don't think that in a goddamn miracle they're both still here, you know. <laughs> But that's the kind of things that, that have, you know, make me understand that there's a loving, giving God in this program. Uh, if you're new and you don't believe me, do something for me. Uh, hang around here long enough to where there's somebody you know who's been sober like a year or more. And then they drink again. Then you go look in their eyes. I hope to God I never see that look in my eyes again. I don't think I'll have to because I hang around with people like you. Uh, where the love's shared back and forth. Uh, hey, I want to briefly mention that family. That hashy salesman on my fourth AA birthday said, my dad has shown me how to live. Now, he didn't say I told him how to live. I taught him how to live. He said I showed him how to live. My son said I was an example to him. And he graduated magna cum laude from University in California and served two years in the Peace Corps and came back and got a master's degree and now makes a fortune, you know. Uh, <laughs> and he loves me. He put his arms around me. The last time I saw him, he kissed me on the cheek and says, I love you, Dad. He's my friend. He's an agriculture major. We don't ask him what he grows, and none of our goddamn. Uh, none of my business. You know. 
He did his Peace Corps in Columbia. <laughs> but we got a daughter that's a really good Al Anon, you know. We keep having to drag her back from Skid Row. She's looking for alcoholics to abuse her down there. And, uh. And we have a son, our youngest son is sober over two years, very active in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, goes to the meeting down here with the bearded one, Kip, they call it the Buffalo Meeting. If you got a whiff of him, you'd understand that. Uh, and our, our middle daughter, Jan, the one that used to hate everybody and everything, has been sober almost three years now, and uh, is in a loving relationship, and life is good for her. And they sit next to us at the meeting, and we love it. Okay. I'm Cliff Roach, and I'm an alcoholic, and that means I can never drink again as long as I live. Because if I take one drink, i got to go back to being the animal I was before. But when I say I'm Cliff Roach, I'm an alcoholic, I mean the vision has come true for me. Uh, a vision for everything and a vision for tr is true. It's happened in my life. All of the promises have, have come true in my life. And everything in that paragraph of the vision for you is part of my life today. There's no way. There, it, there's no way. A sick nut like me can feel the way I do today, except uh, for the magic and the spirituality of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. People like me don't walk around loose in the world, comfortable in their own skin. People like me don't worry about other people. People like me are incapable of love. But the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has worked in my life. And if you're new here, don't go away. Stay here till a miracle happens to you. Uh, I don't know if I, my nonsense did anybody. I didn't fly all the way up here to save anybody. I came up to save this. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from Kip and Connie down there, uh, I don't know if there's anybody in this room that really needs me. But I want to tell you one thing for sure. I sure as hell need you. Thank you very much, uh, Cliff. Thank you. Now, it says in uh, Chapter 5 of the big book that you, if you're prepared to go to any lengths to get here, well, our next speaker uh, got stuck in the lift on the way here and walked down 15 floors, so I guess he was prepared to go to any lengths. And please help me welcome Bob Bean. My name is Bob Bazanis. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, I need you. That was terrific. Yeah, I've been crying all weekend, too. <laughs> Just can't stop. Uh, well, the good part about being in the middle is now I don't have to follow a nun. I mean, following Cliff and then following a nun is just kind of... Kind of, uh, I've been in trouble with nuns all my life, so it's been bad. I've got trouble with. Uh, so do that. 
This is awesome. I, uh, the internationals just have a way of... Uh, it's like standing in front of a mountain. I mean, you see 46,000 people in a room, and you wonder about what the power of Alcoholics Anonymous is and what's the vision for us. I mean, it is just... You can't dismiss it. I mean, you can't understand... You can't think about your carburetor when you're standing in front of 46... I mean, there just... There is no way that you can think about a circumstance. I mean, most of the time, I'm just so focused on some little aspect of my life, and I've got it right up against my eyeball, and I can't see anything. And there's just something about it coming together with you and the way we come together here that is just, you know... I'm just going to travel on vapors when I get back for a while. It's going to be wonderful. I took my first drink of alcohol, and I was 13 years old, and it was a real big deal for me. It was a big deal for me because I was four foot eleven, weighed 95 pounds, was the second smallest kid in my class. I never liked who or what I was, and you'll hear that described in a hundred different ways. We're just uncomfortable with ourselves. We don't like being us, you know. And I was at a party one night, and a friend of mine had a fifth. We went out and we split that fifth, and I made a discovery. And the discovery was when I drank alcohol, I got a feeling of self-worth and being okay and being comfortable that I'd never experienced up until that point. It took me from the outsides and brought me into the middle, and I was able to... It just changed my whole life. From that moment on, I chased alcohol as fast as I could and as hard as I could and drank at every opportunity that I had. And, you know, I joke, kind of jokingly say I became a social drinker. Every time anybody else said, I'll have a drink, I said, so shall I. I just, you know, never passed it up. I just kind of, you know, kept on doing it. But drinking worked. I mean, it really, it really worked. It made it okay for me. I don't know why I never felt okay. It, it didn't feel okay. The world didn't feel okay. I didn't feel okay. And when I drank alcohol, it was all right. It's, you hear people say it's like it kept me alive until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. That was kind of like the feeling that it was. It just never felt like I belonged. It never felt like I knew what the purpose of my life was. You would have grabbed me and said, what's it all about? I mean, I would have had absolutely no idea what it was all about. All I wanted to do was belong and kind of just get through it. I didn't know what, I really didn't know what it was. I left high school. By the time I finished high school, I had a serious drinking problem. You know, when you're underage and you do a lot of drinking, you get into a lot of trouble. I got in all trouble, you know, made IDs, got arrested, you know, got in jail, cracked up cars, all that stuff, went away to school, thought if I could get away from my parents and the police, that would make a difference. And I got away from the parents and police and thought if treat me like an adult, my drinking would become normal. That didn't happen. I drank my way out of the University of Notre Dame in the middle of my senior year. Thank you. Uh, my... Uh, my dad was real pissed off when I left school in the middle of my career. It was, uh, he thought, uh, if you go three and a half years, you should go four, and I, you'd probably take a degree, and, you know, it's real, I mean, it's just awesome that you, uh, you walk out, you know, you don't have to explain it to anybody in the room. You know, you, uh, most people say, God, you went three and a half years, why'd you leave? You know, I mean, it's kind of like asking an alcoholic why they parked the car in the living room. You know, I mean, they, you know. We, ne- we would never ask that. If a guy or a girl was giving a talk and they talked about leaving the car in the living room, no one would ever ask them why they parked in the living room. They'd laugh and they'd talk about it, but no one would ever ask why. That's one of the reasons I just love about meetings with Alcoholics Anonymous. But people who do not have the issue often ask you why, and you have absolutely no idea why I walked out in the middle of my senior year. You know, that's what I did. Had a, I was due to be commissioned as an officer in ROTC and I, or in the Army, and I had to get a medical release. The medical release I got was for alcoholism. I was diagnosed an alcoholic at age 19. That seemed absolutely impossible to me that someone 19 years old could be an alcoholic. But that's what they said, and they got me out of the service. And I thought, what the hell? That was a hell of a deal. Got out of the service, came home, finished college. By the time I finished college, the family asked me to leave the house. So we love you and we care about you, but there's seven kids in the family, and you're a mess, you're a bad example, and good luck. And uh, I left. And with my college degree and my newfound freedom, I struck out to make my mark on the world. I took a position as a carryout boy in a liquor store. I, uh, I almost killed a little girl with that truck back in our driveway drunk one morning. Lost that job for going 80 miles an hour with a delivery truck. 
Ended up as a waiter and living over in Minneapolis, living on Skid Row, living around. I didn't have any. I had a place I lived in St. Paul. In the seven months I worked as a waiter, I only made it back there about three times. I just kept sleeping with different people. You know those Dr. Seuss? Those animals are actual photographs of people that I lived with during, during some of the periods that I worked as a waiter. Uh, we had a guy who was a heroin addict. His wife was a prostitute, and she and I used to share a room. Whenever she had a customer, I used to have to go walk around. And when she got done with the room, I got it. And things weren't going real well. You know how you, you, have, you have an idea? I wanted to go back to my class reunion at Notre Dame and share those things. You know, that was kind of the... The... the uh, but I got beat up one night pretty badly, and I lost that job, and I got uh, kicked in the face pretty good, and they wouldn't let me serve food looking the way I looked, and I quit that job, and I came home, and I asked the family if I could come back, and they let me come back, and this was about the worst. I mean, I was on a bad run for about a year and a half. It was just horrible, and I thought if I could put certain things into my life, I could order my life. I always just wanted to just have it be okay, and I started to put the things in my life. I got married. I got a job. I started to put the things into my life that give me some structure, and that didn't work. And I kept drinking, and I kept having trouble, and one day I woke up, and I just flat couldn't stand it anymore, but I was given a gift about a year and a half before that. My father had tried to get me active in Alcoholics Anonymous and had me talk to a man, and I woke up one day, and I didn't know if I had a job, a fiancé, or a place to live. And I picked up the telephone, and I asked for the number of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they gave me the number of intergroup, and I called. I got an old-timer, and after a few minutes on the telephone, he sent me to a cafe, and I went to a cafe, and I met two other guys. And they sat me down in a booth, and they shared their life with me. They didn't, uh, when you're young and in trouble, you're always in front of authority. They always kind of sit you down and they say, you know what's wrong with you? And uh, they talk to you about what's wrong with you. These two men didn't do that. They sat me down in a booth and they shared their life with me. There's an awful lot of things we have at Alcoholics Anonymous, traditions and gifts that we've been given. And I think more than anything else, one of the, sharing ourselves, we have no tolerance. We don't care about your ideas. We don't care what you think. We care who you are. And if you share who you are, you don't have to be articulate. You don't have to be brilliant. That's, it works. And it changes people's lives. You have an experience. When someone sits down and shares who they are with you, there's something mysterious happens, and there's something happens enough that they opened me up enough that I was willing to, when they asked me if I wanted to go to a meeting, I said, yes, I did, and I was allowed to go, and my life changed. Because Alcoholics Anonymous works, and they found a loving God in Alcoholics Anonymous, I even found necessary to take a drink to the 10th of December, 1967. And... Uh, The last drink I had was on my honeymoon in Acapulco. And you know where the divers dive off those cliffs? In Ac I, d I dove off those cliffs on my last drunk. And I, w I was in an audience watching a world high diving contest. And after about nine planters punches, I thought, that's not so tough. I thought, what the hell? I'm just going to go try that? I said to my wife, that's the dumbest thing I've ever done. And she looked at me and she said, honey, it's not even the, in the top ten. <laughs> and I <coughs> thought, that's kind of tacky. I... Uh, We've gone back there and watched people do that a lot. It still seems pretty dumb, but she doesn't even think it belongs on the list. I, um, I lived half my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, just about. I'm 46 years old, and I've been sober 22 and a half years. It's awesome. I'm here with my sponsor, the same man I met when I walked in the front door of Alcoholics Anonymous. He talked at the old-timers meeting here just a moment ago. I didn't want to stay. I didn't want to be here. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know if I was an alcoholic. I stayed for one reason. I felt I belonged. You, you, you had, you shared your lives with me and I identified. I really didn't know enough about what it was. And then you took me into your hearts and you shared your program with me in my life. You transformed my life. 
It transformed my life. I have three boys, 21. We have three. My wife says I'm married, and I should always say that we have. I used to talk about We have three boys, and uh, 21, 18, and 9. And I've literally built my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, you know, you just know when you're in a room like this what it takes to get here and what it takes to get here when you're... And I, there wasn't anything that worked in my life. And uh, today I'm in love with my wife. And I have three kids, and I'm a better father than I've ever been in my life. And I'm uh, self-supporting through my own contributions uh, right up until the 1986 Tax Act, and now I'm not too sure. And uh, <laughs> the... Uh, but it's been... It, it's just been a trip. And I... I say, uh, thank you for my life. I mean, thank you for my life. It's, uh, you know, we, we have a meeting and we say a vision for you. What is the vision for us? Our founders are dead. You know, we, I, was, I was sitting in a, sitting at the meeting last night, and I've been active in general service and real active in Alcoholics Anonymous through the example of my sponsor ever since I walked in here. And I, I wonder what the vision is for us. We're talking about Bill and Lois and Dr. Bob and those people, and I thought, what about the people that are sober a year or two years or three years? I'm concerned that we don't have enough of those people that are here at the International, that the International doesn't become for the people who are just sober eight or nine years and above. We really need to connect because the young people in this room is the vision for Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you want to... <clears throat> you, uh... <clears throat> I have a uh, 21-year-old son that's about to have three years of sobriety, and I have a 19-year-old that has a year of abstinence. And uh, it'd be difficult for me to explain how much I wanted them to receive what I got when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I got the program of Alcoholics Anonymous handed to me by people who took it directly from the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous and took the message that was in the big book, intact, unchanged, undiluted, and offered it to me. It was uncomplicated. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous 23 years ago, people, we were not the in thing. We were not popular. There was not the distraction. I mean, you put a bag over your head and you went to the meeting. I mean, it was just, I mean, it really was not, I mean, it, it wasn't cool. And it really isn't as cool. It's cool inside Alcoholics Anonymous. It isn't as cool today as we sometimes talk about it. But there's so much of us and we can live within almost a society of Alcoholics Anonymous and we talk about it. It isn't as cool as sometimes we'd like to think about it, but it's a hell of a lot cooler today than it ever has been. But we're almost victims of our own success. We are now part of the world. When I came in AA, we weren't part of the world. And when you're part of the world, it gets commercial, it gets complicated, it gets things added to it, it gets things taken away from it, and it gets complex. And I, I've never seen a time in my life where it seems, at one level, personally, it seems still the way it was, and at other levels, when I take a look at Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole, and I take a look at what's happening in society today, it seems somewhat confusing and somewhat complex. But our founders are dead. They started a general service conference in 1950, and they designed a structure, and they said, we're going to resign, and we're going to give Alcoholics Anonymous back. It's yours. We're going to become members. Do with it whatever you will. It's yours. And that's whose it is. And what it is, I don't, I don't, I, I can't say enough about what it is. It isn't a thing. I know that. I know that you can't save it with rules, and I know that people want to save it with rules. It's something like a family. It's something like a way of life. The old-timers at one time, they wanted to incorporate Alcoholics Anonymous, and someone said, how do you incorporate a way of life? We own a couple of corporations, but Alcoholics Anonymous is not incorporated. I've never felt that more than when you sit in that audience with 46,000 people, you know you are part of something that's bigger than you. And if you sit in those meetings, you know you are, you are part of what came before you, 
and I promise you, you are going to be part of what comes after. It's a living organism. It's a spiritual principle. It is not a thing. The very best way for us to ensure that when our children, and when we want this program unchanged and intact for ourselves, is to live it. I mean, you really want to, you really want to uh, save Alcoholics Anonymous? To maintain Alcoholics Anonymous? It's a gift. I mean, it's, it's the largest social phenomenon I think this country has seen, the world maybe has seen. But, I mean, I heard a guy say the other day, gee, it'd be nice, maybe we should take the Bible and put it on ice for about a hundred years and we brought it back, someone could listen to it again. Okay? I hope that somehow we keep our listening up because there's, there's more distractions today, there's more structure today. You can damn near live your life in Alcoholics Anonymous. It used to be people judge you by how good a member you were about how you were in the world, how you were with your family, how you were with your kids, how you were with your job. When Silkworth said in the book, you can rely absolutely on whatever these men tell you about themselves. I hope that's what they say about Alcoholics Anonymous. I hope we live the program so well in our lives that people say, I don't know what they do, but gee, I like what they have. I want that. I don't know what that is, but it, I mean, it work, it's really kind of special. We put everybody in this room in a spaceship and shot them to the nearest star. The nearest star is a star called Alpha Centauri, approximately it's about 8 million light years away. When everybody got in that spaceship, we would know who we were, where we had come from, and where we were going, and why we were going there. If we went 100,000 miles an hour, it would take 300 years to get there and 300 years to get back. When we left, I would say we'd know all the information we have, but if we didn't very carefully pass that information on from person to person, unchanged and intact, it wouldn't be very hard to understand that 150 years from now, you could have a spaceship just chuck full of people who are literally lost in space. Literally lost in space. The message of who we are and where we have come from is written down in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, but lives in the people and in the recovery of Alcoholics Anonymous. If I had to save one thing in Alcoholics Anonymous, I would save our recovery, the treasure that we've been given. There's a respect for the steps in the recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous that is awesome that we sometimes don't have for the traditions. The traditions we sometimes reduce to rules. We tell people how to practice their traditions. We have so much respect for the steps, seldom would we have the arrogance to step on someone's face about exactly how to do a step because we just know they're so big. We just know you can't contain them. Now we can teach about it. And I say that about Alcoholics Anonymous. I, it, it isn't containable. And each one of us cares so much because we reconstructed our lives and, and we've been given the gift of life in Alcoholics Anonymous. But there wasn't any problem for me because I walked in in 1967. I had that program from men and women who actually know, knew Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob and the people who wrote that book, and I had that unchanged. There wasn't much disturbance. Someone could have come down the hall with the new disease of the month, or someone could have said, hey, we got a new group down the hall. I, you couldn't have gotten a person out of the room. How you walk down in a club today and say you got something new going on there, you can empty out a room today. What I hope is that we take the message that is in our program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I hope we give it to the young people that are in Alcoholics Anonymous today. They're going to own Alcoholics Anonymous. They're going to be Alcoholics Anonymous. And they are Alcoholics Anonymous. And I hope that no one has arrogance. I just hope that we have the non-judgmental love and understanding and acceptance in the program ready. And we say, glad to have you here. Welcome to our meetings. And we sit down and we share the recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous. No urine tests, no written tests. Okay. 
that we have the welcoming and the program available for the people that walk into Alcoholics Anonymous, because I, I believe that people that don't belong don't stay in Alcoholics Anonymous. And we'll... <clears throat> Keep it alive by living it. And take that message unchanged and intact and pass it through your lives. And have it available so that 20 years from now, when a young person walks in the door of Alcoholics Anonymous, they don't find a room just chucked full of people like this who don't know who they are, where they've come from, where they are going, or why they are going there. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Bob. Our last speaker is from New York, and she is Sister Maurice D. How are you? I'd like to thank each and every one of you for coming to be with me on this, the most important day of my life. It's not my birthday. It's not the anniversary of anything in particular. It's just the only day I have. And when people choose to be with you at significant times in your life, you try, at least I do, to remember them in some way or other. And I will try to remember you because you chose to be with me on this, the most important day of my life. At this moment, I stand in awe of God's love for me. I stand in awe of you and my relationship with you. And I stand in awe of Maurice. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a woman. I'm a member of a religious community. I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in good standing. In particular, the Forest Hills Group in Queens, New York. And incidentally, my name is Sister Maurice. Thank you. One of the things that I'm very partial to in our fellowship is that it's a fellowship of equals. There are no titles in Alcoholics Anonymous. No one really cares what you do for a living. I like that. Well, you come along then and you introduce yourself and you're listed on the program as Sister Maurice. Isn't that somewhat of a title? Well, it happens to be my name. It's the name I've been using most of my life. It's the name that's on my driver's license. It's the name that's on all my important papers. It's the name that's written up quite well in two police stations in the city of New York. And it's the name that I gave to you when I came into your beautiful presence some time ago now. A call was made for me, and I went to the Forest Hills group, and I went into the little meeting room there, and a fellow jumped up, and he put his hand out, and he told me who he was. And he said to me, would you care to give us your first name? 
And I was so pleased that somebody was showing some interest in me by asking me my name. And I said, me? I said, I'm Sister Maurice. Now, this guy didn't say to me, hey, you can't stay here with that one. <laughs> and he didn't say to me, well, your mother doesn't call you that, does she? He said, hi, Sister Maurice. And am I just over 19 years with you one day at a time? No one has even suggested to me that I call myself anything else. The other beautiful thing that happened at that first meeting in the outside world, as I describe it, was that gentleman used a very beautiful gesture with me. He used that beautiful sense of touch. He let his hands touch mine in a handshake. I was so impressed with that. Because at that point in Maurice's life, people were not interested in touching me. They were talking to me from across the room and behind closed doors and calling me up on the telephone and writing me poison pen letters. And here I arrive among strangers, so I thought. And two very beautiful things happen. Somebody wants to know who I am, and somebody uses that beautiful sense of touch with me. My name is important, but it's not the most important thing about me. Most important thing I could tell you at any time is what I told you first and foremost, that I am an alcoholic. And when I say I'm an alcoholic, I'm reminded once again that of all the things that I do, my most important task, job, obligation at all times is that I stay sober. And I do that best through the principles and traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous as they have been written. When I came to you a while back, you gave me a book and you called it big. And I was impressed with the way you stated that because I had learned a little bit about keep it simple. And I said to myself, boy, do these people practice what they preach? I could see that the book was not small. It was a big book. And when I took this book from you, you told me that I should try. And that's a key word in my life, try told me I should try to live my life based on what is found in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I try with your help. And without your help, I will have no success at all. So live my life based on what is found in our big book. I try with your help. And without your help, I will have no success at all. I don't know that from personal experience because I have yet to leave you. But I know it well from the experience of others. You know, the little sheep stays with the flock for one reason and one reason only, self-preservation. The little sheep that strays from the flock is the one that's found in the ditch and over the embankment and hanging from the barbed wire fence. I have a drunkalog that would tell you quite well that all by myself I could stay very sick and quite drunk, but I truly believe cannot stay sober and fairly well without you. There's an old Irish saying, and it says to us, in the shelter of each other, people live. And I know as long as I continue in the shelter, under your care, with the God of my understanding guiding all of that, I will live. A vision for you, the vision is tremendous, beyond your wildest dreams. 
Alcohol became a way of life for me in a very short period of time. And by that I mean it dictated my moods, it made my decisions for me, it said you will, Maurice, and it said you won't. When I say, too, that alcohol became a way of life for me, everything began to center around that next drink. I'd be working real hard 10 o'clock in the morning, my kids in the first grade, and I'd look at my watch and I'd say, I'm going to go for a drink now, send these kids out to the bathroom. Then they can have their snack and I'll go get a drink and be back when this is all over. And I try to postpone that for a couple of hours until lunchtime and I just couldn't seem to do it. And everything began to center around that next drink. And yet during the course of my active alcoholism, if you were to approach me and you were to say to me, Sister Maurice, who or what is the center of your life? I would have been insulted by your question because you should have known by my title you should have known by the particular dress I wore at that time called Habit. You should have known by the particular building I lived in at that time called Convent. You should have known that the center of my life was God. And I would have been insulted by your question. Alcohol was no respecter of me because I happened to be Sister Maurice. Alcohol brought me to the point where I denied the existence of my God. One night, I got into bed, my rosary beads in one hand, as was my custom, hanging on to my sheets with the other hand, and I made a bargain with God. I said, if you keep me in this bed tonight without having to take another drink, I'll do more work for you and for your people. Please don't let me drink tonight. Well, you know how the story goes. You get up out of bed and you crawl along the floor and you find your hiding spot and you get your pint and you take another drink. And it was one of the few times that I didn't black out. And after I took that drink, I beat that floor and I doubted the existence of God. How could a God who loved me, created me out of love, a God that I had just called upon, how could he allow somebody like me to be in that condition? Does he even exist? You know, somebody has said and well said that Bowery and Skid Row can be a state of mind as well as a place. That cold, isolated, complete cutoff from God, self, and others. And I could identify with that. I can well identify. We were buddies for a long time. The four horsemen in the chapter of Vision for You. Terror bewilderment, frustration, and despair. And the other thing that happened on that particular night, after I doubted the existence of God, was that I beat that floor, and I cried out at the top of my lungs, isn't there anyone anywhere who knows what I'm going through? Well, I didn't know that you were just up the street and around the corner and a few towns away. But that chapter of Vision for You tells us that as you go along, you're going to meet these people. And I believe the words that C.S. Lewis says to us about relationships. He talks about relationships in general. And he says it's as if God says to the people in the relationship, I, God, have chosen you for one another. And I believe when God gives the gift of sobriety, and I believe it is given, 
he says a few things to us. And one of the things he says is, you will share relationship with these people. They will come into your life and you will come into theirs. And that's what I get out of a vision for you. I continued to drink and one day it all came to a head. And I looked into my boss's eyes and I saw that she was giving me two options. I thought it was decent of her. To go willingly or unwillingly. I couldn't quite understand it when anyone would dare to approach someone of my class and caliber about such a thing as drinking too much. I just couldn't understand it. I was somewhat relieved when I learned that denial is the major presenting symptom of alcoholism. That helped me immensely. I couldn't understand after I hit a mail truck in Wall Street one day, a working day in Wall Street at lunchtime. I couldn't, the mail truck was parked legally at the curb. I couldn't understand after the policeman recognized what I did for a living by calling me sister. I couldn't understand when the policeman said, sister, could you have been drinking? Couldn't understand when anyone talked to me about my drinking. Well, anyway, they blew the whistle and I looked into the boss's eyes and I saw the options to go willingly or unwillingly. And I went off to treatment very much against my will. And there I met you. It was obvious to me why you were there. <laughs> and the one thing that we agreed upon, the one thing that we agreed upon as patients in that facility was that I shouldn't be there. Because you used to say to me, sisters can't be alcoholic, and I used to say, you're right. And I used to sit for one free hour in that hospital. They gave us one hour. And I would sit in my chair, and I would go from the chair to the wall, banging my head against the wall, yelling and screaming at God, why me? Giving you my life, and this is what you've done to me. Well, the last time I said to God, why me? It was just a few moments before I came up here to share. find it necessary to be angry, and I didn't find it necessary to yell and scream at the God of my understanding, but I said to God, why me? Why am I sober, since most people don't get sober? I read a number the other day in one of the local newspapers, and it said there's about 1.8 million sober alcoholics in Alcoholics Anonymous. And then I thought again of the little exercise that I use in which I make a chart. And you could imagine one here this afternoon. And on the chart, we would head it alcoholism. And we would divide the chart into two parts. And on one side, we could put the 1.8 million 
That's a big number. And then on the other side of the chart, we could put those that are still out there. I find that awesome. You wouldn't even see us, that number, in comparison to those that are out there. I find that awesome. And so a few minutes ago, before I came up here, I said one more time to God, why am I sober since most people don't get sober? And he answers very loud and very clear. And a vision for you speaks to it very well. He says, Maurice, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And he says, your work is not finished. And I said, God, tell me one more time, what is my work? And he said, carry a message. I see death. No matter how the person dies, as that a person's work is finished and they're called home. Untreated alcoholism is 100% fatal for most people. And ours has been interrupted with a gift of sobriety. Why? Because God has said very loud and very clear, your work is not finished. Carry a message. And so if you're wondering what it's all about, and big deal today, I didn't drink. Ah, oh, that's a very big deal if you call yourself an alcoholic. They call that a miracle because most alcoholics can't seem to do that for a day. And so what is our work? And the chapter speaks so well. To pass it on. To carry that message in whatever way God wants us to carry it. And there are many ways to carry that message. And then God says, your first obligation at all times, Maurice, is to yourself. And I found that very hard to get a handle on. But he said to me, you know, Maurice, unless you take care of your own recovery, what are you passing on to the next one? And so my first obligation at all times is to myself in light of my own recovery. And that's what I pass on. Because that chapter says to us, you can't transmit what you haven't got. So I've got to keep that in mind. And so very late in the fourth week, I came to grips with this. And I came back home. And I came into the Forest Hills group. I wasn't quite sure that this is what I should be doing. But I didn't drink. And I went to meetings. And I kept coming. And you know, when I came to you, it's interesting. I had no spirituality. I had lots of religion when I came to you. It came out my eyes, ears, and nostrils. I met a fellow one night at a meeting early in sobriety, and he said, Sister, I can tell you're very holy. And I said, you got it. <laughs> but I had no spirituality. And I asked you to help me. And you told me if I put the 12 suggested steps into my life, from that would come my spirituality. And I have found that spirituality is more than relating to the God of my understanding. But it's relating to God, to self, and to others. And you told me the 12 suggested steps would take care of that. And that chapter also talks about love your neighbor as yourself. But see, I was one of those who loved my neighbor instead of myself, what was there to love. And you have taught me 
and shown me in my time with you one day at a time to have a love affair with myself. And that my spirituality isn't complete unless I have a relationship with self. You have helped me to do that. And I was a person to extremes when I came to you. I was either a one or a ten. I didn't know anything about two to nine, and I really wasn't interested. If you could only give me half a loaf, keep it. And I talked to you about getting away from the extremes, and you said to me, Maurice, the 12 suggested steps will give you balance. And you were right. And I have balance in my life today in many areas. I have it for today. wouldn't dare get into tomorrow. And so those beautiful things that have happened, I've gone from terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair to being happy, respected, and useful today, to be able to give away what you have given to me. That's all I'm doing here today, because I had nothing when I came. And that's the vision, to keep on giving away what we have received, to pass it on to the next one, to have the handout to the next one who comes along. I close with words that I picked up a long time ago. And they say this to us. Through no virtue of ours, we have somehow been chosen, snatched back from a grave, from degradation, and clothed again in the robes of human dignity. May we never take for granted that gift of sobriety that is ours. And to that little piece I add, that as I look out here this afternoon, I am reminded one more time that it is possible to die and to rise again. I see that this afternoon. And as I look out here this afternoon, I'm reminded that one's dignity is not preserved in alcohol, but sobriety confers dignity on an alcoholic. And that's the third thing that God says to us when he gives the gift of sobriety. He says, your work is not finished. You will share relationship with these people. And with this gift of sobriety, I give you your dignity. And when you have your dignity, my word, you have a lot going for you. And so my prayer for you on this, the most important day of our lives, because it's the only one we have, is that you'll continue to have your sobriety. As a result of that, I know, I just know, you'll have your dignity. And I close with the very short version of Maurice's story. And believe you me, when I saw the timing for this session, I really thought about doing this one. <laughs> Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And may God bless you, and God bless me, and God keep you, and God keep me, because nobody does it quite as well. Thank you.